2: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, this week, uh, it's a special episode looking back at the last year. Uh, when this goes out, the Gibraltar Open will be in full swing. That was the first event where uh, we were starting to play behind closed doors. In fact, I was told recently the last day was very nearly cancelled. Uh, they managed to get through it. Of course, in Gibraltar, the regulations changed on the last day. They got the tournament played. I'm here with uh, Neil Folds, element Manus, Phil Yates. We we're all in Clan Didno. That was the next event, the Tour Championship, uh, the night before. And I think Boris Johnson made an announcement uh, that suggested that the tournament may not be able to happen, it didn't happen, and of course we all went home uh, with great uncertainty about what was going to happen, not only in the snooker world, but in the, in the world in general. But as we know, snooker got its act together very quickly when sport was allowed back. We came back, there's been a lot of events, mainly staged at Milton Keynes where we are recording this, and hopefully it's provided a lot of entertainment for snooker fans and certainly it's given uh, the players a chance to play. Phil, we came back from Clan Didno as I say, uh, it was a beautiful March day, wasn't it? And no one knew
0: what was going to happen. It was actually like being in a a movie Um, I've never felt a greater degree of uncertainty in my whole life it wasn't just professional uncertainty about snooker, it was just uncertainty in general I was really worried about a a whole range of things my mum's in her 80s you know, I'm 58 I was worried about health I was worried about financial concerns. It was just a horrible day. And the worst thing was just not knowing. Uh, But as you say, a little over two months later, we were back in the saddle. I think it sort of hit home,
2: Neil, when the World Championship... I think we expected it to be called off in that slot in April. Um, But it was, and everyone did their best with all the nostalgia. But you kind of... You set your, you know, there are certain rhythms to a year. It's like the seasons, and for snooker people, that's always been about the Crucible, and then it didn't happen.
3: Yeah, and I remember when we were got to land, didn't know actually. The night before, we were just doing, we were just convening, just all, all getting ready for the snooker, and they were cancelling things all over the place that night. The Grand National went, I think Wimbledon went, so yeah, the, the World Championships was never likely to take place. In its normal slot and I, there was a lot of people thought it wouldn't happen at all which would have been strange it would have meant that judd trump was world champion for two years a lot of people wanted it cancelled i mean i had quite angry messages from a couple of people who were snooker fans said it shouldn't be on what if you know a referee got ill or something happened all these different scenarios but we got through it didn't we and um it was a, a unique and a great world championship when it took place you no know, getting away from it of course there'd been tournaments before that as we know and we started on the first of june didn't we to get things going but it was great to get the World Championships on and it's, you know, one of the very few events that's not taken place at this the place we're sitting now in Norton Keynes. It'd
2: be good to get a player's perspective, Alan. Obviously, you know, you're very much on the tour. Um and again, in those early days as players you didn't know what was gonna happen, when were you gonna play next, could you practice, what you know, what the tour was gonna to look like.
1: Yeah, I remember the, the day that we set home from London. And uh, John Higgins was there, Mark Allen was there already. They dropped up, ready to play as as we all were working and stuff. And I remember driving back home up the motorway and I phoned John and it was like, you know, oh, this is not so good, isn't it? You know, he's driving home. He was actually driving Mark Allen over I think it was John Lennon Airport in Liverpool. Uh, so he was shipping back across to Ireland and we were like, you know, what is going on? You know, hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll get back to... It was the unknown that, as Phil said... That was the the, the real sort of uncertainty of it, and, and as a player, you thought, well, pff, maybe maybe the tournaments are, we're not going to get anything. You're worried about the World Championship. I think China by that time obviously had been putting the back burner. We weren't going to be travelling anywhere. Just an uncertain time for everyone, especially you know, and, and players, yes, but you guys as well. All the production, all that goes with that. It's a big old operation, and it was a tough time. And. D- did you just carry on practicing? Could
2: you practice? I mean, because you, because you obviously you didn't know maybe the world championship suddenly would be announced.
1: No, well, when I got home from Lindor, no, um pretty soon after that the clubs were closed, mm. and I, I don't have a table at home, or, or I don't have a facility to practice. So for me, it was pretty difficult, and, and it still is. The club's still closed. It was open, I think, from memory, it opened mid-July. Was that two weeks before the Crucible? Mm. Um, so I was able to get in, or maybe it was. Pre qualifying, I can't quite remember. So I got a couple of weeks in there. Um, I've got a friend that I was able to go to his club and play a little. Um, there was no one in it. He, he would, you know, he let me in. I went in one set of balls and stuff and played away. But it was really difficult times. And then you once it sort of hit home, and, and we'll talk about this. I'm sure go, going to the tournaments and players getting the practice time and all that goes with that really different and and, and quite annoying, but. Small price, I guess, but it, it, you know, all of a sudden, going into practice rooms. Um, since then, you get a slot. The other guys who are on the practice tables get shipped out. They get ushered out. Sets of balls cleaned, all that sort of stuff, and then you get your slot, and you're you're not chucked out. You're you basically you have to go out. So that massive changes from a player's standpoint. Those early days, the days were long, weren't they? It was like sort of two and a half months
2: until the first event came back. I remember watching... I think this was a low point for me. I remember watching someone on YouTube uploaded um, this video of all the um, introductions to snooker programmes over the years, the different theme tunes, you know, the graphics and so on, how they evolved. 40 minutes this was, by the way. And I thought, I'll just watch it for the start of it. I was, like, hooked by it. It was the most excitement I'd had for, like, weeks. Um, But it was interesting. Barry Hearn, World Snooker Chairman, he emailed all the staff um, when the lockdown was announced... And he said, none of you are going to lose your job and we will find a way of getting through this. And what that did was it gave the staff uh, job security and it allowed them time to, to use that horrible phrase, think outside the box. We, Phil, came to the first event. Elite Sport was allowed back on June the 1st. On June the 1st, the Championship League began here in Milton Keynes. We were here, didn't know what to expect, I think it's fair to say. Um, I was amazed, actually, at the amount of thought that had gone into it. You know, Because they'd never had to deal with this before. And they did, you know, they were, they were entitled to make a lot of mistakes in that first event. But actually,
0: they did a superb job, Matchroom and World Snooker Tour. I can't speak highly enough of them. Obviously, Donna Beresford at World Snooker. She's done a wonderful job. Emily Fraser, Nick Teal, all the people at Matchroom as well. The thought that's gone into it, that first event, the Championship League, we were here for a considerable amount of time and I wasn't sure how the bubble would work. It was watertight, wasn't mm-hmm. it? You felt suddenly... As though you could actually talk to people, converse with people again. You could, you're in, your, the word says it all, you're in your own bubble. And I felt completely safe. And when we started off, I remember I actually commentated on the very first match. And as I was doing my intro into the first frame, I got really emotional because at one point in April and May, you're thinking, will I ever commentate again? Will I ever see Snooker again? I'm not being dramatic. That thought went through my mind.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we just explained to people what when we talk about the bubble. So, I mean, we're talking about the very start of it. We, we got here, I think we got here two days before it started. You, we had the test, we hadn't had the test before, didn't know what to expect with that. I, I think it went slightly better for me than you. You had a, a, a guy who became known for being quite sort of, um, well, overzealous maybe with way, the way he tested people. Um, you know, you get the swab down your throat, up your up your nostril. It takes twenty seconds, but you know, it's not. You wouldn't necessarily look forward to it, I suppose. Um, you go to your room. I think because we got tested quite early in the morning, we got our results in the evening. Back then, it doesn't happen now actually. But back then, you were allowed to go to a little terrace area. You could sit outside. The weather was nice because it was kind of early early summer, I guess. Um, and you get a wristband given to you which you have to wear at all times that allows you backstage. There were kind of one-way systems to follow. The sort of things that if there wasn't a pandemic you'd be really annoyed by and let's be honest, quite a few people did get annoyed by them in the end but actually at that time they're just trying to keep us safe. Hand sanitizers, everything. We were in an area where we were commentating, we had our own room, we had a screen between us. So it was all, you know, not only were the regulations very strict but you were made to feel safe. You know, you were kept away from people. It was, and everyone was in their own little area, the players had their own sort of bubble, the officials, you know,
0: a lot of thought had gone into it, as I say. Yeah, and the commentary area where we were, because they wanted to keep people apart, was a really expansive room with a a dividing uh, partition between us. We had our own microphones, we had uh, sanitizers, which we still have for all of the areas around. So, yeah, you could have felt more safe. You're right, though, that first test, wow, the guy... He was christened Phil the Destroyer, and he destroyed this Phil, I can tell you. He he went so far up my nose, I thought he touched my brain at one point. It was just horrible.
2: (laughs) I've never been in prison. Now, people will say there's still time, I know, but... um... But we, you would get a knock on the door, uh, sort of half eight in the morning, your breakfast is outside. I, it sounds like a sort of prison experience. Whether you wanted it or not, they would knock your door, you're up, here's your breakfast sort of thing. But again, it, it's to stop people congregating, I guess, and getting together. Remember, at that time, it was still early in the pandemic, people were still learning. I mean, at that time, people weren't really wearing masks as such. It was, it was still sort of quite early on. Now, of course, Neil and Alan, you yeah. worked on that, but you worked at it from home. So you, you I mean, we, we come to these events, we're looked after royally by the people that do the real work on the production teams, as, as we
3: know. But you had to essentially construct a home studio. What was that like? Well, I mean, I, fine. I mean, I was down on the south coast. I think you were up at Glasgow, were you know, Alan and uh, mm, Jill yeah. was. Um, Jill was in Cheltenham, and Stephen was down in Berkshire, so it was, it was very odd. Um, we got sent all the stuff, um, which I mean, it cost a lot of money. won't well, going to the figures, but I think a lot of money was spent on getting it all um, usable. And then they said, "Well, here it all is." So, well, who's going to be the guy to? Uh, <laughs> The person to come and assemble it, and I've realised, remembered that, of course, no one's allowed anyone's houses, so it was me. So it was done through. Um, and Alan would, Alan's probably better at all this anyway because he seemed to have it all mastered. No, I'm
1: not. <laughs> well,
3: we, we got there and we got all the equipment sorted out, and we thought, well, this surely none of this can possibly work. And we had a backdrop, and um, you know, ITV did a great job on that. You know, they really did to make it. Uh, I mean, I didn't think that they were going to show Eleven Days of the Championship League. It wasn't ranking, was it?
2: Not uh, there, no.
3: No, that wasn't a regular. I just didn't think it was going to be on. But I suppose what they did have was a position that, that there wasn't really any sport on at all. It was I think horse racing started that same day, but there was nothing else going on. No football or anything. Everything. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that everything came to a, a standstill. All sport, everything during that period. So it, it was great. I mean, it, we got it all working anyway. And I don't think there were too many. I think maybe somebody's internet went down
1: once during the whole 11 it might have been yours actually Alan funny enough uh, yeah I think mine did I had some problems with the connection but here's a, here's a good one I can't remember if it was the first tournament or the tour championship might have been but I think myself and Stephen were in with Jill so the remote broadcast and we went to an ad break and uh, Jill Jill's internet went down and I think we were about maybe two and a half minutes to air <laughs> they, 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 they call it isn't it so and all of a sudden, I can hear in my earpiece. I can hear Jill saying my things with. The, and we're coming back from the ad break, and I'm thinking, one of us is going to yeah. maybe have to represent the after the ad break the shoot. And I'm like, oh no. And I know Stephen's not going to put his hand up and do it. <laughs> yeah. So I think I'm going to maybe get roped into yeah. this, and I, I really don't want to do it. I couldn't have, probably wouldn't have been capable of doing it anyway. So I could hear the a bit of kerfuffle, you know, with Jill's. It was an internet issue. She actually was brilliant because she done the old trick. She switched it off and on, and it started working again. Yeah, say, and yeah. I was like, "Oh, thanks very much, you know." Because I was, I hit panic button a little, you know. I thought coming back from an ad break, I wouldn't have fancied that in
0: vision as well. You know, the worst thing that happened to me was one day at the end of each match, we were asked to do a, a relatively quick out, and then Jill and you guys would pick up with the analysis of the match afterwards, and. That's fine. All of a sudden, the local director here at Milton Keynes was saying to me in my cans, keep talking, keep talking. So I kept talking just to follow his direction, think there had been something gone wrong. And of course there hadn't been. That was for his purposes. And it meant that there was all kinds of problems with Jill. And I heard Jill in my can say... Why does he carry on talking? Shut up, shut up. But on swear, I wasn't, you know, I was only taking direction, but obviously for the wrong person.
2: A cruel person would say that they say that about you anyway, but obviously <laughs> yeah. there's no cruel
3: people here, so yeah. they won't say I think that, <coughs> that whole event, that, that 11 days thinking back on it, it was a great event. I, I think we're all under a little bit of pressure. I remember it was very hard on a couple of players during one very slow day of it, and I sort of kind of regret it now. It was Martin O'Donnell and Nigel Bond, and I think Martin is the nicest guy it was a horribly long match i mean but I, I think i just sort of launched into a thing about how it was the worst match i've ever seen and all that and it didn't it, the group was it look, without going into it again it, it held the day up quite dramatically but i think i was a little bit too strong on that but sometimes i think we we're all under a bit of well at the time we were under a little bit of pressure of our own you know thinking about what's going to happen to the world and uh, i've spoken to uh, martin o'donnell a few times and uh, we're good now it's all sorted out but uh, and he's playing a bit quicker as well so i think everyone has gained but you know sometimes you can the little things at the time can be uh, when when you're under those sort of different pressures that the whole world was under the little things seem big things don't they?
1: It, it was funny setting up the, the home studio thing to touch on that we we got basically maybe two or three big black suitcases didn't we full of all the, you know with the padding in it for all the, there was two or three different iPads, one with a camera one with a sound thing and all so we had to set all that up and, and that wasn't easy and then the screen it was like the projector screen you pull up yeah. And there was a little clip on the top of it that if it like snapped, it would whoosh, it would yeah, come it down. Come so down, yeah. and Jill had the one or two issues with that, but yeah. um yeah, very strange. And it, it it probably took me about a day to set up the studio because I'm not very gifted when it comes to all that tech. Well, thing. there's no
2: reason why anyone anyone should be, but we we nearly had a first fill because we were also doing table two, um, and but table one was prioritised because it was ITV. It was very nearly a one four seven with with two different commentary teams on it because I think did you start it I think and then you had to come and do table one so I rushed in I think Robert Milkins was on like Fifty-six or something. Fifty-six. Yeah. That's right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That could have been a first. Mm. <laughs> the one with Neil the rants about Martin O'Donnell. It was really funny. I was <laughs> sitting here listening to it shortly go I was just I was just wished that someone had brought me back in. I said, "Yeah, that match was terrible." It reminded me of Neil Folds against yeah. Robbie Falvari well, At the British Open.
3: I, mean, I was involved in a couple of those games. <laughs> well, I, think, I think what I said was that um, the, 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 the frame that concluded the match. I think I said. Um, that that was the the worst frame we I've ever seen. and Some of the others that were the worst I've seen were also in that match. <laughs> but anyway, as I say, it's all forgotten now. But uh, you've got to say what you think at the time. But I probably strong it, you know.
2: Well, we came back for the tour championship, um, which was again sort of in the height of summer, really. And by that point, there were kind of suggestions that we were maybe starting to move through through this this terrible thing, the world championship. Uh, was slated to take place in the slot the Olympics would have been on. The Olympics were cancelled, the BBC had cleared the schedules for those, and so the World Championships slotted in, which was quite fortuitous. Um, the Crucible were very keen to have us, and at that point, it looked like crowds would go along in a reduced capacity. Day one, we turn up at the Crucible, OK, it wasn't full, but there were people there, there was some sort of atmosphere. During the first morning, it was announced again by the government because of the scientific data we're going to have to stop crowds, so the next day there were none and eventually they came back for the last day. It was weird, I mean you played there Alan, I think, you, did you play on the first day,
1: and the second day, so you experienced both sides? I did, yeah, day one I played Mark Williams, day one we had the um, reduced crowd and it was it was actually, it was alright, decent little atmosphere, um, similar numbers wise to what the final um, in the end, but then the second day, yeah, I played Mark and I didn't win a frame, so maybe it was good that there were not <laughs> anyone there to to sort of witness it because it was rubbish, but it was um yeah and I, and I spent the whole time obviously end up working there after losing and uh it it was it was good from a working standpoint, but completely different, obviously with no crowd and backstage was very strange there was reduced um numbers in the press room normally that's a hive of activity as you guys obviously know there's there's a ballpark twenty five maybe thirty journals. And they're doing the thing. There was, I think, eight something like that. There was tables separated, and the the numbers were pretty. were stringent on who they were letting in there. It was a um, very strange championship. Yeah. I mean, I think we all we all wanted it at the
2: Crucible, but it's the one venue, unlike Milton Keynes or, or Celtic Manor, for example, where you have the empty seats because it's a theatre. They can't take the seats out, so you're reminded. You it's still the Crucible, but you're reminded there's no one there. It was weird, was not it?
3: It was weird, and the first day was I had a couple of setbacks, didn't we? When you think about it, because there was the announcement about crowds and I remember you and Dominic came back from your first session I don't think you were aware that that, that was it you know and we told you what, what had been announced and also um, I think it was that morning Anthony Hamilton pulled out in the, either on the morning or the night before I don't know the day before yeah the yeah, day before but it became known I think on the, on the first morning and then Barry wasn't very pleased obviously he had his reason but we I think we'd had a drink with Anthony didn't we? a couple of nights before yeah. in the, the qualifiers yeah. at the qualifiers and uh, he didn't give us any indication he was about to pull out and that was a decision he made. It didn't put the dampers on things because no one's ever had a walkover match at the Crucible before. Um, hopefully, it'll never it'll never happen again. But, uh, but I think as the tournament got we got on with it, we got used to nobody being there. It, things did improve, or we certainly tolerated the situation better as the two and a half weeks went on, didn't we?
2: Definitely. And, and what we saw, and, and this kind of reached a zenith, Phil, on the on the last day of the semi-finals, is it's still the World Championship. It still matters to the players. It's still big money. The pressure
0: still comes on the semi-final third day i.e. the the conclusion of the semi-finals was in my opinion the best day not just in the world championship history but in snooker history when you can have a match between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Selby that goes the distance that's got all the ingredients of a classic overshadowed (laughs) by Kyron Wilson and Anthony McGill that says a lot I was absolutely enraptured by the whole day it was For me, as I said before, the greatest day in snooker history and I suppose after that really, whatever happened in the final, it was going to be a little bit of an anti-climax. Ronnie winning his sixth title obviously was fantastic. The the low point of the championship for me was that first night because a lot of people who'd got tickets for that final session, when they realised they weren't going to be there on Sunday or Monday or whatever, basically just went home so even though maybe 250 people were allowed in or whatever it's probably probably 100 people in there for that last session on the Saturday night the first day and it was so depressing it was terrible Uh, you know hopes had been raised and then dashed but of course having the the arena completely empty for the vast majority of the championship actually led to certain things occurring that wouldn't have occurred if the crowd had been in and a, a, a classic point was Jamie Clark and Anthony McGill having that skirmish now I was commentating on the other table, Ronnie O'Sullivan against Ding Jinwei, and you can hear this noise going on in the background. You wouldn't have heard that if there had been a crowd in there. Uh, I just didn't know what was going on. Obviously, I'm concentrating on O'Sullivan and, and, and Ding. So those kind of those kind of things were occurring, which you'd never seen before. But I think, considering the crowd weren't in, I think the championship was a, an unqualified success. The standard was great. The stories produced were great. And towards the end of it, towards the end of the 17 days, Dave, I don't know whether you agree with me, I didn't really notice the fact that the crowd wasn't there.
2: Well, I think that's it. I think snooker, just the nature of... It's one of the few sports where the whole playing area, you can just get into one frame. And you end up just concentrating on on the 12 by 6 I think. But here's a question. So we're we're here at uh, the Players' Championship. Ronnie O'Sullivan is into the final as we record this. And he said after he got to the final... He was sort of asked about the crowds, do you miss them? And he gave, I thought, a very honest answer. He could have given the sort of politically correct sort of PR answer. Oh, of course I missed them. He actually said kind of, well, not really. And I don't think it's in the arena. I think it's all the kind of fuss around the venue. There's no one here for autographs and selfies and getting a piece of him. So I guess the question is, and it's impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Would he actually have won the World Championship had there been a crowd? Because he hadn't been to the final for, what, six years there? Um... He lost to James Cahill the first
3: round before. Was it a help to him that there were no crowds? Well, I'm going to say no because uh, if if it would have been a first time winner, I'd have said, "Well, we we'll never know if it's possible." The fact that he's won it five times before, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't have won it. I, I can't see that. And there was people in there for the final, not that many. So I know other people might disagree. And Ronnie is, you know, he's as he said, he's made it clear he's not. He's happier when there isn't, there aren't crowds. But he, he's won. I'm glad that it wasn't a first time winner. So there was no such problem, and I think that it had Selby won it, Higgins won it, uh, Mark Williams, all these guys that have won it before but more than once. Uh, I, I think it's proved that, that it was an ordinary, a normal championship, or as normal as it could be. And I, I, I would say, yeah, of course he could have won it with crowds. He
1: could do anything, that fella. <laughs> there, there's no doubt I, in my mind he he could have won it, regardless of crowds or not. The the one thing I wonder when it, when he was sixteen fourteen behind to Mark in the semi-final, if there's a crowd would he have thrown his arm at those shots and played that magic snooker for the, I know he's done it in the past a hundred times, understand that but would he have with a crowd thought, right, okay because in the Crucibles with a crowd, sometimes the atmosphere determines the way you think but I think because there was no crowd he was able to get, right, okay, there's no one what let's just go, have a go here we're, we're playing in a quiet environment it doesn't feel like it would normally. So maybe that helped him in that instance. But I, I guess we'll never know. You I know. think it's kind of a, a tribute to me in a way, though, that
2: someone who has thrived on a crowd won the championship without one. You know, he's mm-hmm. always been like the sort of the 12th man almost for him, having the crowd on your side. The fact that it was a kind sort of soulless environment, you might say actually would be a detriment to him. So that's the other side. I'm just going on what he said. He actually said it's not so much the crowd in the arena, it's arriving at a venue and not being. Assailed by 50 people working a selfie. And a lot of people say, boo-hoo, you're a millionaire. But they don't have to put
0: up with this every day, you know. They haven't experienced it. Um, what do you think, Phil? I'm not sure. I really am not sure. One thing I will say, you mentioned James Cahill. I think one of the reasons Cahill beat O'Sullivan in that match was because it was a really alien environment for Ronnie because a large proportion of the crowd wanted Cahill to win. Now, normally when Ronnie plays, even if he plays in China against Ding... The vast majority of the people want to see Ronnie win because they want to see Ronnie. So that was a strange situation for him. Definitely, I agree with Neil. He could have won it without a crowd. He could have won it with a crowd. But crowds do influence certain players. Down at the Masters, for instance, two players were greatly influenced by the crowd, in my opinion, over the years. Detrimentally for Jimmy White, because he had this expectation of trying to play well for for his crowd and I think that put him under too much pressure and that's why he only won the Masters on one occasion and conversely Stephen Hendry's got this within him this curmudgeonly stubborn thing I'll show them and the crowds were disgraceful to to Hendry over the years down at the Masters but he fed off that and used it as a motivational tool to win now that's just two instances with O'Sullivan as I said I think I'm with Neil I've got no real idea what could have happened he could have won it with a crowd. Most certainly, he won it without one. Maybe it was a help. I'll never know. Well, we won't know. That's the point.
2: Um, but I want to move on to the new season. So then we it started quite soon after the Crucible. And, of course, European Masters English Open, these sort of tournaments, Alan, 1-8 to eight at the venue. So suddenly there's a lot of people here at Milton Keynes. You touched on it earlier about sort of practice and so on. What were the sort of noticeable changes compared to you know, even a year before where you're just turning up and, you know, the great freedom really to do what you want. Yeah,
1: again, on the practice schedule, you had you basically booked your slots. And here's one example. It was here in Milton Keynes. I came in, I can't remember which tournament it was, I came in hoping to get a practice and uh, I think the practice sheets were full. And I asked at the desk downstairs, I said, are there any slots right? And there's no one on it. There was five practice tables and I asked for a slot. And they said, um, well, you can go on now. And I, th- I think there was 20 minutes of the slot that in that moment in time was left. There was no one on the table. They said, you can go up and take the table that's free, but you'll lose the one that you booked <laughs> later on, which was at half past nine at, at night or something. And also, if you go up and take the slot now, the guy who might come in late for the slot now, you'll get chopped off and you'll lose your one later on. So you're like... Mm. It was it was just a whole upheaval for every player as far as practicing, and um, difficult to sort of get your head round. And players coming to a tournament, like one of the most important things is a player slots. I mean, I, personally, you get it's now all online and stuff. But I actually, I'm a bit, I'm a bit uh, sort of uh, old school, <laughs> old school exactly. The way I do it, I've got my wallet. I, Every time I get a piece of paper and I write down my times, Tuesday half ten, Tuesday five o'clock, so that I can—I don't need to worry. I look at my work. I've got them. So, um, although I, I didn't used to do that, but I've been doing it now. You know, because it's like golden—you you need your practice time, and, and if you miss it, you're, you've had your chips. You know. I think Milton
2: Keynes obviously, and it's done a great job, and of uh, just providing a place to play, but. I heard it, I've heard it said several times, oh, it's good because it's central. It's not really central if you live in Glasgow, is it? It's a, it's a long drive down, it's a long drive back.
1: Yeah, it's a very, um, very long drive. It's about a six-and-a-half-hour drive for me um, to get down and up. I came the first probably three, four, maybe five visits to, to Milton Keynes, I, I drove. And then laterally, the last two or three months, I've gotten the train down and back home uh, either three or four times. The trains have been brilliant for us because there's no one on them. I yeah. mean, you cannot believe uh, that how empty the trains are. Like, if I've been on eight trains all in, going up and down, there's no one in any carriage. It's brilliant. I actually came down to one of them with Fraser Patrick. It was that Pro Series event. Um, we and I, I didn't know he was going to be in the same train. I bumped into him at Glasgow Central just a few weeks ago, and we came down, and it's brilliant. You got. The, you know, the whole carriage to yourselves. So it's been good from that but but it is a long it's a long journey. Mm. But <coughs> look it's it's worse for the guys in Ireland and I'm sure, you know, the Belgians and young Brian Ochoiski, boys like that mm. having to go back home that's tough. Mm. I think for me, when the new season started the
3: thing that I noticed straight away was that players were starting to get tested and tested, were tested positive, and that's what shocked yeah. me. Yeah. That was what really did change things for me. And thinking, well, up now we hadn't really seen anything, had we? we? I didn't. We didn't know anybody. or Most of us didn't know anybody that tested positive. Some might have done, and obviously some people had terrible stories. Without going into all that, but I think the very first event, I think if I'm not mistaken, Gary Wilson and Daniel Wells might have tested positive. Thought, okay, now this really is impacting on the <coughs> players, and of course. You thought goodness hope those boys are going to be fine that's more than anything and it turns out that the 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 people on the tour mercifully they haven't been badly affected but there must be oh i think i, mean, I, I over 20 players of the, on the tour have since tested positive and thankfully they're all fine um i could i could probably we could without going into names it must be you're talking maybe a fifth of the tour have, have come down with it haven't they so that's what really shocked me and uh, events for the next three or four months Players did test positive on a regular basis. I know it happened to you, Dave. You know, mm. as a commentator, and one or two others on the other side of not uh, uh, non-players and all that. But um, that's when you realise, wow, this is a serious business now. You know.
2: Yeah, it's not nice either, because and it's no one's fault. This, they're doing the right thing. Obviously, they need to get you off, out off the premises um, because you can't be here. They sort of fumigate your room or whatever, and so you're literally just marched off off, off the off the off the premises. For the players, you know, they've got rankings, they've got prize, money, things to think about. And also, I think early on when people were tested positive, you think if, if there's sort of three on the first day, maybe there'll be a few more on the second day, and eventually you think in this tournament maybe he's going to collapse because people are pulling out and even people... I mean, Oliver Lyons, I think, was very unlucky. He, he, he won a match in one of the tournaments having tested negative. His dad, Peter, tested positive. Ollie had seen him only briefly, as it turned out, but he'd spent time with him, so he... I think he, I can't remember who he beat now. He beat someone, someone good. I think who was playing well. Had to go home. No points in camp, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, So very difficult. And again, you know, it's it's no one's fault. They've all been careful. I mean, Anthony Hamilton. There's no one more careful than him. Um, he was literally going from the club to his home. He would take his clothes off, wash them when he got home. Couldn't have been more careful. He tested positive. Actually, Peter Lyons told me he was quite. He himself was quite quite ill with it. He lost sort of his breath, and, and you know, was very close to going to the hospital. Um, very difficult, but I think in terms of the actual snooker fill on the table, what we saw, until Jordan Brown recently, all
0: the people who won the tournaments were the same people who'd who'd been winning them the last few years. That's right, well, the great concern for the champion of champions in November for a lot of this season is that it was just repeat winners, you know, we've got a 16-man field there, and at (coughs) one point it was looking as though you would probably have half of them off the rankings, uh, because... It was just the same old guys winning tournament after tournament after tournament. I think this season has been remarkable for three reasons. One, the standard has been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if you think about it, post-pandemic, the Tour Championship, for instance, we had two best-of-17s where one player had six centuries. So Maguire set the record, six centuries in the best-of-17. And a couple of days later, Murphy did the same and lost the match. And I think that set the pattern. The standard's been phenomenal. Secondly, shocks pre-Jordan Brown, have been thin on the ground. I think thirdly, what I always think about is that the people I feel most sorry for this season have been the rookies because someone like young Jamie Wilson or Aaron Hill, you know, their first season on tour is this. You know, and it's not like this normally, is it? It's not like this is a very strange situation. They must be dying to play in front of crowds, and let's hope they get the opportunity. Well,
1: uh, sorry, I wanted to touch back on the Crucible thing and, and pay tribute to the... Just the, before you carry on, yeah? I just supposed to explain. For some reason, they've turned up the music,
2: <laughs> obviously to entertain the crowds that are not here, but anyway, let's <laughs> continue. Uh, yeah, on the
1: Crucible thing, pay tribute to the, the people who go year on year, and hopefully we'll all be back soon, obviously. Yeah. Um, the the whole dynamic of the Crucible is, is almost based around the crowd, as we know, you know, Crucible Square, in the venue... Atmosphere, all that sort of stuff. Even the final weekend, I think it is, the tickets go and sell for next year. There's a queue a couple of hundred yards long for the tickets for next year. There was none of that. So I was walking in every morning. I was lucky to be there uh, in both capacities, playing and, and, and doing um, the TV stuff. And uh, that, that's the thing that we really missed at the Crucible. I know you guys weren't able to come up there. And, and the, the, the thing about the people who go, and it's year on year, you go back to the hotel, You go in at night. You probably go to the bar. You maybe have a pint or something. You see the same faces, and it's brilliant to see them all there. And thanks for coming year on year and come back next year and we'll be there. You know, hopefully definitely because a
2: lot of those guys, it's like a sort of it's like a festival, isn't it? It's an annual. Mm. It's the only time maybe they'll see each other that every every year, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, no, definitely, And, and yeah, I mean. I know they're talking about Possibly making this year a, a test event But that's kind of Out of Barry's hands That's down to the To the government I just want to touch on I mean some players have, have sort of dealt with it Better than others And I think players Have spoken quite openly About how they've struggled Not everyone likes Spending a lot of time On their own Steve Maguire came down here Didn't he and, and sort of smashed the pack Couldn't wait to get home Everyone's different aren't they um, as, as a player Alan how, how have you sort of found Having to sort of Isolate as such And be in your room And not Mix as much as maybe you would normally.
1: Pretty difficult, yeah. Must admit, um, I wouldn't say I've been depressed about it, but I've been seriously cheesed off from time to time, as as probably every player has been. You're not able, you know. Listen, players down the years have had some criticism from certain quarters, even some journalists within snooker or, or whoever writes about it. None of you guys, but there's been a couple of people who have criticised players. I'll get here's an example of why I respect. Pretty much all the players on the tour. Talking about coming down from Scotland for tournaments, I can guarantee that none of us have shared the card down here. You've know, you you've got to do what you've got to do. Come down on your own, whether it's train or your own car. I mentioned Fraser Patrick earlier. I would Nothing more I would love to... Because I, I played in the same group in the Pro Series. I'd text Fraser, say, listen, I'm going down on Thursday. Do you want a lift? Or vice versa. You can't do that, and we're not doing that in the play you know certainly the ones I know, the guys from Scotland, so credit to the, the, the players for that kind of thing because um, I don't like to see them get criticized unduly, mm. um, certainly the ones I know. Yeah. I know one thing, um, Snooker,
3: I mean it might have had it hard, but I was looking at um, the jockey called Tom Marquand who's a, a British jockey who's just gone to Australia to, to ride there, and he had to spend two weeks completely in isolation in, the, in a hotel room without coming out once. Uh, he's, they've got an exercise bike in there which he's obviously keeping fit on but he hasn't been able to do anything else but that and that, that, that is really tough isn't it and don't get me wrong these guys are earning good money when they come out but two weeks where you can't leave a room once thats and a lot of the cricketers are doing it a lot of the overseas stuff is like that and that's going to maybe impact on the snooker tour when we can finally travel so there's a lot of people having it difficult as well aren't of course
2: there? Declan Lavery he, he had that didn't yeah. he because he came over for well, his home event, although it was played here in Milton Keynes, the Northern Ireland Open, tested positive, couldn't be put on a plane because he's got the virus, he has to isolate for 10 days, just spent 10 days in his hotel room. I mean, that's just no, no fun at all, is it?
1: Yeah, and, and I've taken a risk a couple of times, but it's on my own, on my own head, be it. I've came down, whether it's playing or in a working capacity, as I said, I got the train. And when you get the train down here, if you test positive, you know you're going to have to suffer what Declan did, mm-hmm. but... That that's you live with the sword, you die with the sword. That's my own decision, but it's just the fact that I can't face a six and a half hour drive yeah. again because it really gets to you. Um, I know th- people are there's a lot worse things people have got to put up with, yes, um, but that's tough. And so you, you just got to make a call on certain things, but um, and no one would like to have to spend that amount of time, obviously, in a hotel room. But that's. That would be the case if if he tested positive. Yeah, and I think it's obviously important to
2: say a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this, will have you know they're not working at all, and some will have lost jobs, businesses. We know it's been very difficult in the economy. Just as we start to wrap up, Phil, ha- have we learned anything from all this, or, or or when it hopefully comes back to normal, do we just go back to normal, or do we think we maybe I don't know, do we appreciate snooker more, maybe maybe appreciate the tour more?
0: It's changed me. I can tell you something, and this is the truth. I've enjoyed snooker tournaments more this season than at any other time in my career because, for me, work and pleasure have actually switched over. Work is now my pleasure because when you're not at work, there's literally nothing to do. So being at tournaments is the best time of my life for the last year because, other than that, you get depressed, you're seeing the news all the time, you've got nothing to do, you can't go anywhere. I love to travel go to America twice a year on vacation that's all gone so being at work fills my mind fills my hours and it's the best part of my my year so I'll never ever forget this year for that reason and also I think I'll become more appreciative not just of snooker when we go back to normal but I think of just the normal things you do in life go around a golf or go on holiday that'll seem like phenomenal in the years to come uh, yeah, I think I think that's
3: that's all that's all true, and uh, you know it, it has changed. I think a lot, a lot of our perspective of everything, really. There's no question about it. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking the tour will come back, it, you know, with overseas events at some point. I'm not sure that's going to happen yet, is it? I don't know what this mm-hmm. year has in store for us all. Really, um, hopefully, we will get back to China and other parts of the world, but. That's not gonna happen. Just one other thing, I mean you we mentioned all the players that it's affected. A lot of the overseas players, I don't know how they've ever got over here, you know, like like Luca Burcell, like Ulian Boyka, who it was his first year as a professional as well, age fifteen, he, he must think what on earth is this snooker tool all about? <laughs> you know, he's not won many matches. He's been spending it all in Milton
1: Keynes. So it's tough, you know, for a youngster like that too, isn't it? So yeah, it's uh, sobering. Yeah, t- talking a tough. I mean I, this is not a complaint, it's just an observation. I Pre Christmas, I went home on the twenty-first of December, I think it was, and I came down here on the thirty-first of October. So I was I was here for forty-nine out of fifty-two days. That's quite (laughs) it's quite a lot. I got home for three days prior to the Grand Prix, I think it was. And I'm not complaining. I'm just I'm just telling people that's what you know. That's what. um, But very fortunate being able to play and do some work at the tournaments, which I love doing. Um, but that was uh, that was quite a long stint, you know, fifty days ballpark. Yeah. Well, I'm really shallow. I just want to get back to the pub, um, <laughs>
2: and uh, hopefully that day will come as well, and we'll uh, we'll be able to maybe relax a bit more at tournaments and and mix a bit more at tournaments because it is uh, obviously as we know a nice community at the snooker. Um, but it's gone on, and hopefully you know people are enjoying what they're seeing. The World Championship looks like we won't have a crowd, but hopefully everyone will enjoy it. Uh, hopefully if we do this again next year we will uh, be in a little bit more freedom and and, and maybe not here, anyway thanks for listening everyone, see you next week Sports Social Podcast Network
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper?